We are concluding today the commentary on the Desire of Ages, Chapter 79, that I wrote, entitled, It is Finished. And we're starting on page 764 with the next to the last paragraph in this chapter. At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. And this refers back to the discussion in the previous paragraph about the destruction of the wicked. Had Satan and his host then been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. What didn't the angels understand at the beginning of the great controversy? Had Satan and his hosts then been left to reap the full result of their sin, equal cause-effect, they would have perished. Not they would have been destroyed, but it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. The question of sin, whether it leads to the inevitable consequences or an imposed penalty by God, is the core problem in the great controversy. This is why Jesus had to die. The stronghold and core of the legal model that makes it visible is imposed penalty. This is partly what makes it legal as opposed to moral and spiritual. In the legal system, law enforcement has to enforce the penalty arbitrarily and externally. In God's moral system, punishment is the inevitable result of sin. Any questions or comments? I think this highlights, once again, the effects of an arbitrary system versus a natural law system. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a natural law system, the consequences are inevitable. That is what makes them natural, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to arbitrary. Yeah. You know, Ellen White never uses the term natural. Uh, and I think the way, reason she shies away from it is that she understood that God uh, can interfere with natural law. In other words, he can introduce other laws that offset certain laws in terms of miracles and, and various things. Uh, so she stayed away from that, but she's very clear here. Inevitability is the heart of natural law. It's what makes it, as you said, uh, inevitable. As, as opposed to arbitrary. So I think it's an excellent word, and I've been working it into my vocabulary much more since realizing that. Okay. To put her statement in other words, had God chosen to let Satan and his followers suffer the inevitable results of their rebellion immediately, they would have suffered the final death then and there. But that death would have been seen by some throughout God's universe as divine execution and thus as an imposed penalty. It would not have been clear to those watching that it was inevitable consequences. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as evil seed to produce its deadly fruit <coughs> of sin and woe. Because of Satan's charge, you will not surely die. God had to make it clear that sin leads to death. Thus, Jesus had to die because only one perfectly innocent who was a created mortal could make it clear. And everything depended on Jesus' words on the cross about what he was experiencing. If he cried out, My God, my God, why are you killing me? The great controversy would have been lost to Satan. 
This explains why Jesus struggled in his mind over God's character on the cross. So everything depends on experience here. In other words, this is demonstrated evidence because in God's cosmic court, the only thing that stands is evidence. And it has to be demonstrated here because no one has ever experienced this death before. So it has to be demonstrated what that death is. And, and everything depends on what Jesus decides about what he's experiencing on the cross. And that's why the word choice of forsaken instead of killing is so important? Yes. Yes. If he had said, my God, my God, why are you killing me? He would have perceived his father as, as killing him and there would be no way around it because who is going to know what they're experiencing on the cross but the person experiencing it uh, people observing it's true I suppose an angel looking at it from above can see the father enshrouded in darkness at the foot of the cross and see Jesus and recognize that he's not laying a hand on Jesus and I think the angels did see that but the core, the very core experience is what Jesus himself says and what he's experiencing, what he reveals. And if he had said, why are you killing me, that would have enforced a legal model? Absolutely. Because, because what he's suffering is the, the final consequences of sin. I'm going to use a legal term. He's suffering the penalty of sin. But it's not an arbitrarily imposed penalty. Upon Christ as our substitute, and surely was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor, that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of his son with consternation. All his life, Jesus had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now, with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was his agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Christ. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror, or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. Okay, uh, before we read the next paragraph, you notice that this is from the previous chapter than what we're on. And you notice how that chapter, she uses much more kind of legal kinds of terminology. Substitute and surety, uh, redeem us from the condemnation of the law. 
the wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity. All of those terms are, are you, would be very, people who believe the forensic model would be very comfortable with these terms. What I hope to do in following times together is look at her more forensic sounding statements and discuss how, how we interpret her writings. And this will be a, a, a preview to how we interpret the Bible. Uh, because what I hear a lot from people is when, when I discuss my views with them, they will say, well, it, but it says it other ways in other places. And, and they fall back on that. It's like, if, I can, if it says it this way here, and, and I'm comfortable with that, then I can take that. And I think, unfortunately, what we have done is, is take our favorite ways of saying it and, and stuck on them. And we haven't attempted to find a way of harmonizing those statements together and as Alan White it should be easier because we have a single writer with the Bible it's harder because we have multiple writers so anyway we're going to I think launch on this because I'm, I'm very aware of my larger audience and I'm concerned that some, at some point we need to do this we need to sit down and work out what we call hermeneutics that is method of interpretation so I hope to be able to do that in the future Jesus' substitution was necessary to reveal the truth about the nature of sin and its results. It was penal substitution only in the moral sense, not in the legal sense. As sin-bearer, he revealed the truth about what sin does to one wholly given over to it. He felt sin's weight, its guilt, and the wrath of God, which was the withdrawn of the divine countenance and the hiding of the Father's face. Everyone's guilt was pressing on him, the natural consequences of the full experience of sin. Satan used the opportunity to tempt Jesus to believe that God's wrath against sin was so terrible that Jesus would never see his reconciling face again. Jesus experienced the absence of love, all the attributes of Satan. In this case, he must have had a strong sense of Satan's portrayal of God divine arbitrariness, force, malignancy, cruelty, anger, fury, combination, and compelling power. In the absence of his father's presence of love, he no doubt was tempted to believe that his administration was like Satan's. Okay, any questions or comments about this before we move on? Could you explain that first sentence? I was thinking that's the hardest one, isn't it? Jesus' substitution was necessary to reveal the truth about the nature of sin and its results. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, the easiest way to demonstrate the truthfulness of God's words, because that had been called into question, you will not surely die, versus you will surely die. The easiest way is to let Adam and Eve die. It's over. No forgiveness. Uh, not only does that not allow Adam and Eve another chance, which God wanted to do, but it left open the question of how did they die, what killed them. And you remember that in the statement, let me see if I can find it and I'll tell you the page. Well, we just read it, actually. It's on the previous page. <laughs> At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. 
that it was not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. Had Satan and his host then been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. So the same thing would have happened with Adam and Eve. God lets them die. Is it clear that it's the inevitable result of sin? Oh, maybe God just simply killed them. How can you tell? And I think that's part of the problem we have with the times when God intervenes in the Old Testament and people die. That we're seeing it and the text is reading it from the visibility level and the assumptions of the ancient Near East are that God is killing them. And we can't see behind the scenes. We can't see all that's happening. Uh, and, And even the angels couldn't fully tell. So this is why Jesus had to die, is to make it clear. And instead of making us die, he chose to die. And thus he's our substitute. It's, It's a very loose term to denote someone doing what we couldn't do. It's not a hard core legal term like it's been made to be. Uh, and it also just dawned on me that Jesus would have been the only person who would have fully understood God's character uh, and his experience in having to go through all this would have been a testament uh, exactly. that one of the best testaments exactly and, exactly. and one, of the, one of the very forensic sounding statements that she makes uh, we're going to be looking at where she talks about that G- only Jesus had the value had the value to make that sacrifice. The angels didn't have that value because they were amenable to law. But Jesus, who is the embodiment of law, could make it clear. And, and thus God, in a sense, you're say, we're saying God himself had to make it clear. He had to do it. No one else could. It seems like the difference between uh, uh, before and after uh, Christ's sacrifice, it seems like the, the difference... Or one of the differences would um, especially be um, the um, like it's supplying here the revelation of the natural consequences of sin as opposed to being put to death as in the Levitical laws and all those, and that could be why maybe I don't know. It seems like maybe that that could be why the Levitical laws were sort of put aside and. and 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 it's more um, it, the focus was more on on Christ and his sacrifice rather than all those. Well, the Levit- Levitical law is is a shadow of what is to come, a shadow of mm. Christ. So it it couldn't re- purely represent it. However, there is symbolism in the Levitical law for just what we're talking about. Because it, and it isn't clear in the modern translations always, but it was the person who brought the animal, who put their hand on the animal, who slew the animal. Meaning, my sin causes this innocent death. Oh, okay, that makes sense. So, so there is there is evidence for it even in that. And then the other the other end of things, the animal was dead before it was burnt. That's that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, so we have to really look at this, and and I think, and as we move through further discussion, 
things will become will come through quite clear on what thing what is going on. Okay, uh, the hiding of the father's face. I'm on page 23. Hiding of the father's face is what sin does when God lets the wicked go to the inevitable consequences of their choice. Their sins are built on Satan's lies about God, lies that uphold Satan's character and administration as God's own character and administration. Sin does not let them see God's face of love. How does this align with the words, the glory of him who is love will destroy them? Love in all its warmth and radiance either draws a person to it or hardens that person's heart. For this reason, love can shine on that person, but the person cannot see it. But its shining brings out the rebellion that destroys them. Jesus fears that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. From Satan's standpoint, God was the variable and sin was only a problem because it was offensive to God, not because it was intrinsically evil. Jesus was tempted to believe Satan's perspective and thus he feared never seeing his father's face again. This is clear when we consider the basis of Jesus' victory on the cross over Satan's temptations. I would like to point out something on this. It's only when we understand that the law of God works on inevitability, not enforced penalty, that we realize that sin is intrinsically evil. That it is evil because of what it causes, not because God doesn't like it. God doesn't like it because of what it causes, not because of some personal antagonism to sin that is simply his own arbitrary will. Uh, it's not arbitrary at all. Sin is inherently evil because it destroys sinners. And God hates it because it destroys those he loves. Uh, I heard a beautiful illustration of this at Loma Linda when I was working on my master's degree there quite a few years ago, more than I care to admit. <laughs> and it was a an oncology surgeon he said you know some people think that we surgeons you know, basically take a patient into surgery do the surgery and then we might see the patient once before and once after but we don't develop a relationship with them but he said that's not true he said I, I develop very close relationships with my patients and said there was nothing more terrible for me than to get close to a person, take them into surgery, open them up, and discover they're full of cancer. And he said, I hate the cancer that is destroying someone I have come to love. And he said, that's why God hates them. It's exactly the same way. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance, heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith, he rested in him, whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God, the sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. 
So Jesus not only experienced the second death of mental agony, he had to determine, analyze, and decide while going through it whether he was suffering because of God's anger directed actively and arbitrarily against him as sin-bearer or because of sin itself. This is why only the God-man could be our substitute and surety. Only he as God could fully reveal God. Only he as a moral or a mortal could taste death for every human and come through it so that he could tell the universe, this is what I experienced, this is what the second death is. He understood that his father's displeasure against sin was the absence of his presence, the absence of his love. He understood that God only has to give sinners up to their choice to go to the absence of divine love, love which is life itself, to go to death. But Jesus experienced that absence emotionally, cognitively, physically, and spiritually, yet without ever partaking of it by his own choice. Thus, he never succumbed to the tyranny of Satan's system of force. Any questions or comments? That death, the absence of love, is mental anguish because apart from love, our minds cannot cope with life. Apart from love, the wicked will self-destruct, not by suicide, but with, by the mental agony of letting go completely of divine love. Jesus understands all this. He understands that he was experiencing the absence of God, of love, of life. He understood that he was only apparently forsaken of God, that his father was actually right there at the cross, suffering with him. He understood that sin, that hideous rejection of divine love, was hiding his father's face from him. His father had not changed from being the kind of God Jesus had ever revealed him to be. He was still of the same mind. Don't you think that at the cross, Satan was really attempting to force God to change in some way? To, because if, if Jesus had in any way misunderstood what was happening to him, there would have been a complete change in mind in God himself. I, 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 that's what, the lengths to which force will try to go. It's try to force it to happen what we want to be, not what really is. It, it's this, again, this, back to this contrived, manipulated, arbitrary, artificial arrangement. At the beginning of the Great Controversy, the angels did not understand this, had Satan and his hosts then been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. But not so when the great controversy shall be ended. Then the plan of redemption having been completed, the character of God is revealed to all created intelligences. The precepts of his law are seen to be perfect and immutable. Then sin has made manifest its nature, Satan his character, 
then the extermination of sin will vindicate God's love and establish his honor before a universe of beings to delight to do his will and in whose heart is his law. What makes the universe secure against sin is the full knowledge of what sin leads to. If Jesus had not made the inevitability of sin clear to everyone, God would ultimately have lost the entire universe. It is this inevitability that establishes his law, the moral transcript of his character, and reveals it to be unchangeable. As a description of how love and truth work, the law rests upon principles that cannot change. To violate them leads directly, or inevitably, to self-destruction. If sin's inevitability, death, were not the result of breaking God's law, God's character and his law could be changed. A law built upon an externally imposed penalty to enforce it as law that can be changed because such a penalty is arbitrary, making the law arbitrary too. Anything arbitrary can be changed. This is the core of forensic understanding. The prominent scholars who espouse the forensic model of atonement believe that as a result of Jesus' death, a change or reconciliation took place in God's mind. If God executed punishment upon himself or his son, then he could change his mind because he was appeased or appeased himself. Thus, the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan will center on a legal versus moral view of God, atonement, and salvation. As stated above, our current legal systems anciently have ties to Babylonian sun worship, the God of justice. It is only fitting, then, that the day originally dedicated to the Roman version of that deity, Sunday, should be imposed on humanity as legally the day of worship, the sovereign God. At the time, the seventh-day Sabbath, the divinely appointed sign of the bond between us and God, will be the day that those who stand with Jesus in testifying to the righteousness of God's loving, truth-filled ways will keep, even if necessarily define legal institutions of human beings. The Sabbath is a sign of our bond with God, need not be taken superficially. Anciently, the difference between Sabbath rest and Babylonian rest centered around the creation versus appeasement. Sabbath represents God's creation order in which natural law prevailed, illustrating God's spiritual and moral laws, and in which human beings were created in God's image to govern the natural world. By contrast, in Babylonia, the gods could rest once they were appeased, and according to the Babylonian creation story, they were appeased when human beings were created to be their slaves. These human slaves could never rest. Only gods were given that privilege in Babylonia. This sta stands in sharp distinction from the Bible Sabbath, in which God invites all, even animals, to rest every seventh day. Thus, the Sabbath, in every way, reveals that God's moral law is dynamic, descriptive, and relational, not legal. For genuine cessation from work and its result, rest, cannot really be commanded. The Sabbath, then, is an appropriate sign of that bond of relationship. In Babylon, no such bond or tie existed between the people and their gods. There was not even such a bond between neighbor and neighbor. Everything had an economic and legal basis. Every relationship had a kind of contractual setting whereby people could trust one another because they swore an oath before God or signed a legal contract or attempted legal satisfaction when estranged. By contrast, the seventh-day Sabbath was a sign of a bond between Israel and God, a bond that in the prophets was not formed in a legal or economic sense.
the mode the prophets chose was that of marriage and not of marriage of legal ownership uh, signified by the Hebrew word Baal but one of mutual relationship in friendship I've chosen to end this commentary on this notion of the Sabbath because I believe that as the time approaches for the coming of Jesus these issues will be the center of discussion our only safety at that time is to so understand them so partake of God's love and goodness so develop an utter godlike abhorrence for Satan's system of force that we will not be swayed by means of deception, fear, or force to give up the loving ways of God. Okay, any comments or thoughts or questions? It's a fascinating uh, paradigm that I believe is being suggested here. Uh, as you were saying before, kind of hermeneutics. Uh, but this seems more like a paradigm for interpreting Christianity itself and more specifically at the end, Adventism itself. Yeah, it, I, I worked for years on the Sabbath trying to understand it. And in, in terms of how I was raised to see it, it was arbitrary, very arbitrary. And once I, my mind opened up to seeing God in this way, uh, I had to keep working away at it and, and it took a long time and it really took until I studied the ancient Near East I studied Babylonia and, and began to realize that law was invented by human beings not by God and, and that is legal uh, constructs and once I realized that I, I began to then see all these interrelationships as they work out and began to see the Ten Commandments in a, a different way. Uh, and, a, and I have discovered that the Ten Commandments are really seven commands that have to do with our relationship with God and seven commands that have to do with our relationship with one another. And they interface, the seven, the seven, they parallel each other all the way down so that you have a relationship going on, not, it's, it's about relationships. It's not about legal obedience or disobedience. And once I saw that, then I could easily uh, look at the Sabbath again and, and then realize, you know, cosmologically, it's about the kind of law you find in creation, not the kind of law you find that we have invented. It very much seems as that, and this is uh, what interests me, is that all the commandments, uh, well, the, the Sabbath uh, encompasses all commandments. It, it seems like the the sabbath is the sabbath is what the commandments are it, it it's just it's interesting yeah it it sums up relationships and and that's why it's perfectly set there in the middle of the law so that it summarizes our relationship with god but it also links to our relationship with others so it it's it's really it, it really is the tie uh that ezekiel talks about the tie that sets us apart, that, that makes us holy because we get to rest with God. And, and it's when you understand that in light of Babylonian rest and how it's used in, in the Babylonian creation, which we will be working through at some point, maybe not this year, but next year. I'm, I'm, I'm having to... Oh, poor Alex. But, you know, it'll be available online for you to, <laughs> to look at. Um, the thing is that this, this whole cosmological order is built on inevitability.
unnatural cause-effect relationships. And, and once we understand that it affects everything, it affects the fact that righteousness by faith is really righteousness by trust, and trust can't be commanded. Trust is predicated on the trustworthiness of the person whom we trust. And thus God has to prove his trustworthiness to us. Since we have bought Satan's agenda and Satan's lies, uh, we can't trust God without that evidence, demonstrated evidence of God's trustworthiness. That's what is all involved in this. So it, it reaches into every aspect, I believe, of Christian life. Well, one of the things that I've just found really interesting about you know, your ideas presented here is the idea that uh, in this kind of court scenario, uh, ironic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Cosmological court, not legal court. <laughs> but in this scenario, God has to demonstrate uh, the evidence. Uh, he has to show that it works, not just tell. And almost all my life, it's been, you know, if you can't understand it, you, just, you have to trust that God knows what he's doing. Uh, and really what's being suggested here is that, yes, that's true, but that comes from seeing a demonstration and that we really can understand what's going on here. You, you know, when, when students give me that line, and they do regularly in my yeah. classes, uh, I know I'm not hard on them. What, I'm, what I feel really angry about is <laughs> the teachers that taught them that. <laughs> and, and yet I realize those teachers were taught that themselves. And it's, it's a wonderful, lazy way of getting out of thinking uh, about God. Because if we can't understand him, well, that's the end of the comment, that's the end of discussion, that's the end of thinking. It's also the end of sanctification. Because if... I want to look at something because maybe this is a really good note to pause on. I'm not sure we'll end here. depends on our time. But uh, look at Matthew. We did this last week, didn't we? Did we look at Matthew? I thought I did somewhere. Maybe it was in another class. I think it's Matthew 13. This is the parable of the sower. And I never realized this until I revisited it. You know, it's, it's amazing how truth is really an open door. You walk through it and there's an ever-expanding universe. Because once you learn something that impinges on something else, you then revisit that something else and it becomes a wholly new idea. And what it dawned on me is what Jesus is, is doing with this parable is talking about understanding. The sower that goes out to sow, he sows seed, and it's whether this soil that it falls on or what it falls on, whether it's receptive or not. Well, how, does, how do we receive something? Do we receive it by just saying, yes, Lord, whatever you say so. Uh, I don't understand it, but I'm going to accept it. Is that receiving it? Kind of arbitrary. It, arbitrarily forcing myself to receive it but I'm not really receiving it because if I really receive it it sprouts it grows it, it blossoms it bears fruit <laughs> and that's all part of this natural world isn't it the, the cause effect relationships why did Jesus, were Jesus favorite parables ones about the real world of God's creation well if it receives it it understands it that's what Jesus is pointing out here. And you look at uh, this. The disciples 
Don't ask him to explain it right away in Matthew's account. They come to him and say, verse 10, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, To you it has begun to know, not just to assent, but to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven that to them has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they who have an abund- and they will have an abundance. But with those who have, from those who have t- nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing, they do not perceive. Perceive is part of understanding. And hearing, they do not listen. And to listen, the word in the, in the Old Testament to listen is to obey. You can't really listen unless you're employing understanding. Nor do they understand. So he's leading you in a step-by-step progression toward understanding. They see, they don't perceive. That's the first step to understanding. They hear, but they don't listen. Nor do they understand. So it's a step-by-step progression to understanding and then he says with them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says you will indeed listen but never understand and you will indeed look but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and their eyes are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes so they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So what Jesus is saying, I can't heal them unless they seek to understand. So the reception of the gospel is predicated on our ability to understand and we can't understand something arbitrary. Next time I'm going to be sharing with you the you might say the vintage theologian on the forensic model, John W. Stott. And uh, his book, The Cross of Christ. I'm going to be sharing you selected passages. I'll bring a handout with those passages on there. Uh, he maintains that God is not arbitrary. And he means that only on the level of because he, doesn't, because he has a reason for things. He does not use it on the level of cause-effect relationships. But to be really rational in the fullest extent, we have to reason from cause to effect. That's, that's inherent in un- really understanding and really being using our reason uh, correctly. So, to me, what Ellen White has done in this chapter is she has taken the death of Jesus out of the legal construct and put it squarely in cosmological, what I would call cosmological justice, which is the the cause-effect relationships which God runs the universe and which he created the universe to run. So that's where we'll end. And I don't know that you need to bring this again, although it might be good. We might want to refer back to it occasionally. And that ends this section on force versus freedom and we will begin a new series and I've got to figure out what to call it so if you have any bright ideas (laughs) 
let me know. Why don't we pause for prayer? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the wonderful way in which you created us to work and forgive us for not using our minds in the way you created them to work. We pray that we may never shortchange ourselves to fall back into seeing you as arbitrary and seeing that we must just accept the way you are, but we might move forward to understand you more fully. And we pray that for each and every one of those listening to this, in ourselves included, in Jesus' name. Amen.